Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the podcast where we do things excellently. Speaking of doing things excellently, a big thank you to our new Patreon subscriber. We got another new Patreon subscriber overnight, uh, another $5 a month from Alexander. Thank you, Alexander. I'm going to f- actually thank all my Patreon subscribers right now. Alexander, Joe, Russell, Eric, Jury, Zach, Rebecca, William, Matthew, Alana, and Jordan. You guys are the best. And I sincerely thank you for supporting me and supporting the podcast. We are getting dangerously close now to the first goal, the first um, tier goal. What are they called? I don't know. If I get to $50 per month on the subscription base, I will... What, what did I pledge? I'd made a pledge that I would do something at that. Hang on, I'm trying to find it. $50 per month, I will do two chapters per week of Pogan War and Peace. At the moment, I'm just doing it to no schedule, when I get time sort of thing. But if we reach $50 a month, I will be locked in to that, and that would be a good thing. Um, we're at 38 a month. We're nearly there. A couple more subscribers, and I've got to actually do stuff. <laughs> so that's cool. Thank you, patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. Thank you to the Patreons. You guys are the best. Um, All right, there's an ad for you. Sorry about that. I'm trying to get into the habit of starting the podcast by saying some kind of a promo thing, whether it's for one of my books or for the Patreon. Um, You know, it's just a good habit to be in. Um... I've had 260,000 downloads of the Hemingway List podcast. 260,000, I think, or something around that. And, um, like, hardly any ads across the episodes. So it's just silly, really, isn't it? We're talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 10. Boarding school book time. And what are your first impressions of Mr. and Mrs. Watson? Jan Brunt said, The meeting between Mr. Watson and Philip brought to mind an Edward Gorey limerick. To his club-footed child, said Lord Stipple, as he poured his postprandial tipple, Your mother's behaviour gave pain to our saviour, and that's why he made you a cripple. The poem isn't complete without the illustration of a big, vigorous man and a tiny limping child scroll down to the second drawing on the page okay let me have a look ah okay (laughs) tiny little tiny little child he's about as big as the guy's shin he's got the biggest little tiny sooky baby eyes and then a big man in a big suit um it's a it's a bad illustration (laughs) the uh it's not a very good drawing Good limerick, though. Um, Anyway, yep, I can see why that comes to mind. We shall see how the Watsons treat Philip. The school has a good reputation, according to the Careys, but Philip got kicked in the shin only minutes after arriving, so who knows? Um, J.P. Guthrie says, I wonder if Philip gets his club foot treated. Mr. Watson seems likable. Mrs. Watson seems the polar opposite in characteristics, though. Oh, you used the forbidden name, J.P. Guthrie. 
Um, the author does a great job of depicting the awkwardness of forming friendships at that age too. Swim said the mum fish. You had your first warning, J.P. Guthrie. The King's School, Canterbury, says Swim, said the Mumfishy. The school originated as a medieval cathedral school said to have been founded during the late antiquity of 597 AD, a century after the fall of Western Roman Empire, by Augustine of Canterbury, considered the apostle of the apostle to the English, and the founder of the English Church, therefore making it arguably the world's oldest extant still in existence, surviving school. This is based on the fact that St. Augustine founded an abbey, which the current school's grounds, where it is known that teaching took place. When the dissolution of the monasteries took place, the school was refounded by royal charter in 1541. The name King's School was used for the first time, referring to King Henry VIII. At school... S.M. was teased for his bad English, French had been his first language, and his short stature, which he inherited from his father. S.M. developed a stammer that stayed with him all his life. Oh, wow. I am Norwegian, said, I really enjoyed yesterday's chapter, but whenever I just listen to the podcast, I have a habit of just forgetting to comment. I'm a little surprised by how quickly we've moved on from the vicar, Anne-Marie, and whatever the aunt's name was true we did move right along from them i feel like they'll be back though um and hey don't forget to comment on this chapter on tonight's chapter i'm norwegian and i'll even say that at the end of the podcast just for you fix the blue said and so philip moves on not the best start to his boarding school life first boy he meets is a bully who kicks him i hope that there are some friends for philip here and maybe he can have some play and fun times, even if the Careys have seemingly mapped out his life and career almost uh, already at nine years old. The Watsons really do seem like polar opposites. Mr. Carey is unbearable, says Laura Wystitch. What's Mr. Watson like? asked Philip after a while. You'll see for yourself. Seriously, man, can't you be a tiny bit kind to the kid? The thing about Mr. Watson tickling Philip to give him confidence killed me. Yeah, Mr. Kerry is a bit unbearable. And that line, I didn't even really notice until you pointed it out, but the poor kid's nervous going into a boarding school with, you know, teachers he's never met and people he's never met, and he just wants a bit of reassurance. He says, what's the teacher like? And <laughs> mean old Mr. Kerry can only say, you'll see for yourself. I mean, just throw the kid a bone. Just say, oh, you're going to love him. You're going to have a great time. Everyone's going to be your friend. Don't worry about a thing. Just say that, even if you don't know. Even if it's not true, just give the kid a break. Screw you, Mr. Carey. Starfall 15 says, What annoys me in those boarding schools in literature is that most teachers or headmasters act as if they don't come in contact with children. Any adult will realise that his club foot will be a target and try to ease the new student way into the school. Teachers won't be able to prevent bullying, but at least try to prevent it on the first day, and Mr. Carey is going to be a Mr. Carey more concerned about his discomfort than about Philip. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe school was different back then. Maybe there was this big divide between teachers and students, but you can't imagine today a new stu- student starting at a school and the teacher just sort of being like, off you go, fend for yourself. Um, but you know, 
my first impression of Mr. Watson, and I hope he doesn't make a bloody sucker of me, but I thought um, it's pretty promising. He seemed quite happy, quite kind. Hopefully he's friendly. Hopefully he's not just sort of, you know, putting on an act. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a bit of luck for Philip, young Philip. All right. Oh, <clears throat> may have left it a little bit late tonight, as you can probably tell by me yawning into the microphone. We've got another chapter here for you. What are we up to here? Chapter 11 goes like this. Next morning, when the clanging of a bell woke Philip, he looked round his cubicle in astonishment. Then a voice sang out, and he remembered where he was. Are you awake, singer? The partitions of the cubicle were of polished pitch pine, and there was a green curtain in front. In those days there was little thought of ventilation, and the windows were closed except when the dormitory was aired in the morning. Philip got up and knelt down to say his prayers. It was a cold morning, and he shivered a little, but he had been taught by his uncle that his prayers were more acceptable to God if he said them in his night's shirt than if he waited till he was dressed. This did not surprise him, for he was beginning to realise that he was the creature of a god who appreciated the discomfort of his worshippers. Then he washed. There were two baths for the fifty boarders, and each boy had a bath once a week. The rest of his washing was done in a small basin on a washstand, which, with the bed and a chair, made up the furniture of each cubicle. The boys chatted gaily while they dressed. Philip was all ears. Then another bell sounded and they ran downstairs. They took their seats on the forms on each side of the long, two long tables in the schoolroom, and Mr. Watson, followed by his wife and the servants, came in and sat down. Mr. Watson read prayers in an impressive manner, and the supplicant, supplications thundered out in his loud voice, as though they were threats personally addressed to each boy. Philip listened with anxiety. Then Mr. Watson read a chapter from the Bible, and the servants trooped out. In a moment... The untidy youth brought in two large pots of tea and, on a second journey, immense dishes of bread and butter. Philip had a squeamish appetite, and the thick slabs of poor butter on the bread turned his stomach, but he saw other boys scraping it off and followed their examples. They all had potted meats and such like, which they had brought in their play boxes, and some had extras, eggs or bacon, upon which Mr. Watson made a profit. When he had asked Mr. Carey whether Philip was to have these, Mr. Carey replied that he did not think boys should be spoiled. Mr. Watson quite agreed with him. He considered nothing was better than bread and butter for growing lads, but some parents, unduly pampering their offspring, insisted on it. Philip noticed that extras gave boys a certain consideration and made up his mind when he wrote to Aunt Louisa to ask for them. After breakfast, the boys wandered out into the playground here the day boys were gradually assembling they were sons of the local clergy of the officers of the depot and of such manufacturers or men of business as the town old town possessed presently a bell, a bell rang and they all trooped into school this consisted of a large long room at opposite ends of which two undermasters conducted the second and third forms and of a smaller one leading out of it used by Mr. Watson, who taught the first form. To attach the preparatory to the senior school, these three classes were known officially on speech days and in reports as upper, middle and lower second. Philip was put in the last. 
The master, a red-faced man with a pleasant voice, was called Reese Rice. He had a jolly manner with boys, and the first time passed quickly. Philip was surprised when it was a quarter to eleven, and they were let out for ten minutes' rest. The whole school rushed noisily into the playground. The new boys were told to go into the middle, while the others stationed themselves along opposite walls. They began to play pig in the middle. The old boys ran from wall to wall, while the new boys tried to catch them. When one was seized, and the mystic words said, One, two, three, and a pig for me, he became a prisoner, and, turning sides, helped to catch those who were still free. Philip saw a boy running past and tried to catch him, but his limp gave him no chance, and the runners, taking their opportunity, made straight for the ground he covered. Then, one of them had the brilliant idea of imitating Philip's clumsy run. Other boys saw it and began to laugh, then they all copied the first, and they ran around Philip, limping grotesquely, screaming in their treble voices with shrill laughter. They lost their heads with the delight of their new amusement and choked the helpless merriment with sorry, choked with helpless merriment. One of them tripped Philip up, and he fell, heavily, as he always fell, and cut his knee. They laughed all the louder when he got up. A boy pushed him from behind, and he would have fallen again if another had not caught him. The game was forgotten in the entertainment of Philip's deformity. One of them invented an odd, rolling limp that struck the rest as supremely ridiculous, and several of the boys lay down on the ground and rolled about in laughter. Philip was completely scared. He could not make out why they were laughing at him. His heart beat so that he could not hardly breathe, and he was more frightened than he had ever been in his life. He stood still, stupidly, while the boys ran around him, mimicking and laughing. They shouted to him to try to catch them, but he did not move. He did not want them to see him run any more. He was using all his strength to present himself, prevent himself from crying. Suddenly the bell rang and they all trooped back to school. Philip's knee was bleeding and he was dusty and dishevelled. For some minutes Mr. Rice could not control his form. They were excited still by this strange novelty and Philip saw one or two of them furtively looking down at his feet. He tucked them under the bench. In the afternoon they went up to play football, but Mr. Watson stopped Philip on the way out after dinner. I suppose you can't play football, Carey, he asked him. Philip blushed self-consciously. No, sir. Very well. You'd better go up to the field. You can walk as far as that, can't you? Philip had no idea where the field was, but he answered all the same. Yes, sir. The boys went in charge of Mr. Rice, who glanced at Philip and, seeing he had not changed, asked why he was not going to play. Mr. Watson said I needn't, sir, said Philip. Why? There were boys all around him, looking at him curiously, and feeling of a feeling of shame came over Philip. He looked down without answering. Others gave the reply. He's got a club foot, sir. Oh, I see. Mr. Rice was quite young. He had only taken his degree a year before, and he was suddenly embarrassed. His instinct was to beg the boy's pardon, but he was too shy to do so. He made his voice gruff and loud. Now then, you boys, what are you waiting about for? Get on with you. Some of them had already started, and those that were left now set off in groups of two or three. You'd better come along with me, Carey, said the master. You don't know the way, do you? Philip guessed the kindness, and a sob came to his throat. I can't go very fast, sir. Then I'll go very slow, said the master, with a smile. Philip's heart went out to the red-faced, commonplace young man who said a gentle word to him. He suddenly felt less unhappy.
But at night, when they went up to bed and were undressing, the boy, who was called Singer, came out of his cubicle and put his head in Philip. Put his head in Philip's. What? Oh, in his cubicle. <laughs> the boy, who was called Singer, came out of his cubicle and put his head in Philip's. I say, let's look at your foot, he said. No, answered Philip. He jumped into the bed quickly. Don't say no to me, said, Phil- said Singer. Come on, Mason. The boy in the next cubicle was looking round the corner and at the words he slipped in. They made for Philip and tried to tear the bedclothes off him, but he held them tightly. Why can't you leave me alone, he cried. Singer seized a brush and with the back of it beat Philip's hands clenched on the blanket. Philip cried out. Why don't you show us your foot quietly? I won't. In desperation, Philip clenched his fist and hit the boy who tormented him. But he was at a disadvantage, and the boy seized his arm. He began to turn it. Oh, don't, don't, said Philip. You'll break my arm. Stop still, then, and put out your foot. Philip gave a sob and a gasp. The boy gave the arm another wrench. The pain was unendurable. All right, I'll do it, said Philip. He put out his foot. Singer still kept his hand on Philip's wrist. He looked curiously at the deformity. Isn't it beastly, said Mason. Another came in and looked too. Oh, he said in disgust. My word, it is rum, said Singer, making a face. Is it hard? He touched it with the tip of his forefinger, cautiously, as though it was something that had a life of its own. Suddenly they heard Mr. Watson's heavy tread on the stairs. They threw the clothes back on Philip and dashed like rabbits to their cubicles. Mr. Watson came into the dormitory, raising himself on tiptoe he could see over the rod that bore the green curtain, and he looked into two or three of the cubicles. The little boys were safely in bed. He put out the light and went out. Singer called out to Philip, but he did not answer. He had got his teeth in the pillow so that his sobbing could be inaudible. He was not crying for the pain they had caused him, nor for the humiliation he had suffered when they looked at his foot but with rage at himself because unable to stand the torture he had put out his foot on his own accord. And then he felt the misery of his life. It seemed to his childish mind that this unhappiness must go on forever. For no particular reason he remembered that cold morning when Emma had taken him out of bed and put him beside his mother. He had not thought of it since it happened, not once, but now he seemed to feel the warmth of his mother's body against his and her arms around him, Suddenly it seemed to him that his life was a dream, his mother's death and the life at the vicarage and those two wretched days at school, and he would wake in the morning and be back again at home. His tears dried as he thought of it. He was too unhappy. It must be nothing but a dream, and his mother was alive and Emma would come up presently and go to bed. He fell asleep. But when he awoke next morning it was to the clanging of a bell, and the first thing his eyes saw was the green curtain of his cubicle. Alright, there we go. Another chapter down. Have your say over at the Hemingway List subreddit. Don't forget to do it. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.